So let's begin. We are up to the 14th chapter. The 14th chapter, we will read how this, the cracks in society and the divisions that started growing over the past couple of chapters, right, where it was not just divisions in terms of the individuals not getting along with each other, but also in terms of both the Northern society and the Southern society kind of falling into a different lifestyle, a lifestyle that was not intended to be for the Jewish people, right? So we read at the beginnings of those cracks and this week we're going to see how it comes to fruition. And two weeks ago's chapter, we had that really fascinating story where there was a prophet who came to speak to Yeravam and he tells the Yeravam, he tells Yeravam, listen, what you're doing is wrong. You have been not just causing, you've not just been doing the wrong thing yourself by worshiping these representations of uh, sort of um, assistance to God. And so they weren't worshiping the calves as if they had independent powers. It was similar to the golden calf where they were worshiping it as a representative of God, as a, instead of having a completely abstract creature, they were having a physical representation of something that is related to God to help in their prayer service. That being said, it was completely forbidden. And Yeravam is warned, if you continue down this path, bad things are going to happen. And this altar will break apart and you will end up dying an awful death and you won't be able to be buried right away, right? And so on and so forth. And so that's where we really ended with them, that last chapter, where even after this very dire warning, Yeravam completely does not heed the warning and goes immediately back to the activities that he had been doing prior to this, immediately back and bringing sacrifices on this false altar. And we read the story about how that prophet ends up having this crazy story where he goes back to eat in the person's house and he ends up getting uh, killed, right? He dies and the lion is and donkey are standing right next to him, not doing anything at all to show that he dies, not because of his dire warning, but rather he died out of an act of God to make it more and more clear that Yeravim should listen. So Yeravim is getting opportunity after opportunity, but at a certain point, the answer is going to be, you know what, you've had enough opportunities and now it's just too late. So let's read what happens now. In chapter 14, at that time, Aviyah, a son of Yeravim, fell sick. Yeravim said to his wife, go and disguise yourself so that you will not be recognized as Yeravim's wife. And go to Shiloh. Shiloh is where they had a, um, was in the southern kingdom, right? And it's where they had had the tabernacle for many years. The prophet Achiah lives there. Achiah Hashiloni, who was a very holy prophet. The one who initially predicted that I would be king over this people. The one who told him, take that garment and split it up into 11 pieces, right? I'm sorry, into 10 pieces, right? To symbolize that the Jewish people will be split up into the 10 and the two. Now, why does she have to disguise herself so that she will not be recognized as Yeravim's wife? What is the concern over here? Anybody wanna take a, a guess at that one? So, Oh, I, I muted everyone. If anybody's trying to speak, I'm oh, sorry. I think because, uh, you know, he doesn't want to be seen consulting a prophet. I mean, people would recognize that her as his wife. He, has, he wants to keep it secret somehow. So, yes, yes. So many people suggest that this was out of a political concern as the individual who the entire thought process was from the beginning. He had a political reason and a political impetus to set up these, uh, you know, these idols in the Northern Kingdom because he did not want people to think that they needed to go to the South to access a re relationship with God because then they wouldn't recognize that he is not on as high a level as the Davidic King, 
Okay, so this would kind of put the lie to everything. So when the chips are on the table, you don't actually go to the oracle. You don't actually go to the altar that you set up in the Northern Kingdom with your representation of the golden calf. You send down to the traditional Jewish route, which is to go to the prophet. That would kind of take away his entire impetus and his, his power would go away. What's fascinating is, and, and my wife Leah was telling me this week about a, um, this must be a Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know when this came out, but a Malcolm Gladwell about cognitive dissonance, right? And that's where you, you sort of tailor your worldview to fit what you already believe, okay? So if you have a picture in your mind about something, then you will be able to retain something that at first glance is completely different. And from the outside looking in, you say, how could you possibly hold both of those thoughts at the same time? It doesn't make any sense. But we're able to maintain something called cognitive dissonance, where we have these two different thoughts that should be completely contradictory. But for whatever reason, in the world that we build, our own worlds and our worldview, our perspectives that we all build in our lives, we're able to actually put the two and reconcile the two together. Okay, I, I, That was an example of cognitive dissonance. That wasn't really the best definition of cognitive dissonance. The cognitive dissonance here is glaring. Okay, This is an individual who's sitting here trying to convince everyone else Listen, guys, you have to understand, we can go worship the golden calf. We can build an altar. You don't have to go down to the temple. You don't have to go down to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. Of course not, co-worship right here. But when his ships are on the table and everything is on the line, he immediately says, go down to the real prophet. Last week when the real prophet came to him, not Achia, but a real prophet nonetheless, he completely ignored it. So what that means to me is, He's recognizing that there is truth in the South. He's recognizing that the true prophet is over there. And he's recognizing more than that. He's done something wrong. By representing a lie to the Jewish people, to the Northern Kingdom, he is doing something terrible. Hashem told him before he was first appointed as a king, if you follow the Torah, good things will happen. If you do not, bad things will happen. He knows what he's doing is wrong. But there's a cognitive dissonance there where he's able to sort of compartmentalized basically in his mind that this is okay even though when a push comes to shove he actually is going down to the south to speak to that prophet right a fascinating idea insight into human nature now so that's one answer one answer would be that he doesn't want other people to recognize that he's actually sending away to the prophet i saw another couple of answers one answer is an interesting answer that's based on the based on the nature of a prophet and it's like this when a prophet says something right and he gives a prophecy that prophecy will come true in the vast majority of times we saw last week that when the prophet gives a prophet about a dire prophecy it does not have to come true when he gives a prophecy about a good prophecy it will come true inevitably right now what he was concerned is is that if some woman walks into Achia ashiloni right the prophet and the woman says listen navi prophet my son is very ill. Can you please pray for me? You have a relationship with God. Can you please tell me what will happen? The prophet will say, oh, this poor woman, her child is sick. I'll daven for her. Well, what he was concerned is that if she goes down and everybody knows that she is Yerubim's wife, when Achia Shiloni sees that this is Yerubim's wife, his immediate response is going to be, you're the wife of the man who I personally delivered a message of what his fealty should be to, towards God. And he did not listen. You are the queen. You represent the northern kingdom. I will not just prophesy about what will happen to your son. I will have to now prophesy about the entire northern kingdom. He does not want to run that risk. And therefore, he says, dress up like another woman, and nobody will know who you are. This is actually similar, very similar, eerily similar, 
to the story of Saul. Remember, Saul has eliminated necromancers from the land in, in Shmuel Beis in Samuel 2. Saul has completely eliminated necromancers. You're not allowed to have them. The problem is he needs to have one last talk with King, uh, not King, with the Navi, with the prophet Samuel. But Samuel is dead. So what does he do? He disguises himself like a regular person, and he goes down to a necromancer, one, one sorceress who he has left alive, and says, can you please bring up for me the king? Now, it's not the same idea, because it's the opposite. Whereas over here, Saul eliminated the people who were doing something wrong, and now he himself wants to make use of it, so therefore he, he, uh, he disguises himself, and he goes to make use of it so that he can have a conversation with Samuel, which is not permitted, by the way. He was not supposed to bring up Samuel from the dead. So over there, that's one way of looking at it. And over here, what we have is a different way, where, where um, Yeruvim has set up a situation where he is not supposed to be going down to the south. But when push comes to shove, he sends someone down to the south to speak to the, to the prophet about what will happen to him in the end. Right? So there's a very, very strong parallel there. Take with you 10 loaves, some wafers, and a jug of honey. And go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. Why is he taking these loaves, wafers, and a jug of honey? Right? What's the point of taking this? So this is a concept that we have again and again and again, that when you go to a prophet, you bring them something to eat, bring some sort of a gift with you. Right? Why do we do this? What's the point? So there's two different perspectives about this. One perspective is like this. It's important for us to internalize the value of this message, right? There's something that you say about free advice, right? Free advice is worth just about as much as you pay for it, right? Now, the, one of the reasons why it's worth just as much as you pay for it is because if you don't pay money for it, you don't take it seriously. The Gemara tells us this idea. The Gemara says, if you have a doctor who's willing to work for free, that's just as much as his medical care is worth. It's worth exactly nothing. Because if he's willing to work for free, it's not worth anything at all. Okay? So that's not to say that if Linda decides that she wants to do her services for free, I'm not, I'm not calling you out. That would be wonderful. That would be a big mitzvah. But a doctor who says yeah, I have to work for free, then that means because he can't get any money because he's not such a good doctor. She is not such a good doctor. Not, not you, Linda, one who had to work for free. Okay, so we're saying this like this. So when you pay money for something, then you value that. So when you come to the prophet and you have to give something to the prophet first, you're going to value that more. That's one angle. Personally, I don't like it so much because it's a prophet. It's a prophet of God. Do you really need to pay for it and then you'll value it more? Right? This is clearly not just free advice. So another answer that I've seen, and this is really based on the Sefer HaChinuch, a beautiful idea. In Judaism, time and time again, we find that we actually take something physical when we are engaged in the spiritual activity. And I'll give you the best example that I can think of, which is Kiddush. On Friday night, we stand up, right? Table is set. The challah is on the table. Whoops. The chicken soup is, is bubbling, right? And the candles are lit. And we stand there to be mikadesh ha-shabbat, to sanctify the Shabbat, right? Which is a mitzvah in the Torah. It says, zachor et yom ha-shabbat. You shall remember the day of Shabbat. How do we remember it? By making a declaration that God rests, God worked for six days, and then he ceased from creative actions on Shabbat. And then we say, zachor et yom ha-shabbat, and then we talk about, we make the blessing that Hashem created the world, Hashem took us out of Egypt, and then, we sit down. But what else do we do? We have a cup of wine in our hand and we make a blessing on the wine right in the middle, in between, right? The two blessings. And then afterwards, we drink some wine. Like, what does that have to do with anything? You're sanctifying the Shabbat. Why do you need wine there? Where does the wine come into play, right? What's the deal with that? 
So the answer is that when there is a certain state of uh, physical satisfaction in this world, you're able to access a higher spiritual plane, okay? When you're feeling satisfied, when you're feeling serene, when you're feeling calm, you're at ease, you're able to have a more of a mental connection to a spiritual entity as well. So perhaps the answer is that when you bring this gift to the prophet, the prophet will partake in the gift and the prophet will have a sense of appreciation and the prophet will be able to be in a state of satisfaction due to the individual who is asking for the prophecy and they'll be able to attain a higher degree of spiritual connection to the upper worlds, okay? Yerobam's wife did so. She disguised herself, right? She left and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Achiah. Now, Achiah could not see, for his eyes had become sightless with age. Why does the, why does the, uh, the author of, the, of Kings, why does the author of Kings need to tell us this? That the prophet could not see. Right? Why is this relevant? Well, I believe, okay, go ahead, Linda. Oh, it would, well, because I, I suspect that, that Jeroboam knew that and had heard about it, and he figured, especially if she was disguised, there's no way he would recognize her either. I mean, it, it, it kind of also it echoes what happened with uh, the blessings of the sons and, and when with Isaac and, and you know. Yeah, 100%. I think both points are correct, right? It is supposed to be an echo of, of the story of, of Yaakov coming and, and taking the blessing away from Asa, right? Over there, of course, his father is blind and does not recognize him, right? And it also lends us the understanding of why he thought she would be able to pull it off, that she's that no one would know who she is, because Achia has become blind. But let's see what happens. But the Lord had said to Achia, Yeruvim's wife is coming to inquire of you concerning her son who is sick. Speak to her thus and thus. When she arrives, she will be in disguise. So Hashem says in advance, listen, here's the deal. They're going to be trying to trick you, but you should know what's going to be happening. Achia heard the sound of her feet as she came through the door and he said, come in, wife of Yeruvim. Why are you disguised? Right? In other words, he's saying, you thought I'm blind. You thought even if I wasn't blind, you'd be able to trick me. There's no tricking God. I am a man of God, right? I am not here as a regular individual. I'm not one of your charlatans that you have up in the Northern Kingdom. I am a man of God. And I know exactly who you are, even if I am blind. And I have a harsh message for you. Go tell your Rabbim, thus said the Lord, the God of Israel. I raised you up from among the people and made you a ruler over my people, Israel. I tore away the kingdom from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant, David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my sight, right? Now, in this week's Torah portion, parenthetically, by the way, something to notice, in this week's Torah portion, right after Moshe is told by Hashem that he will not be able to go into the land of Israel, and that he, you know, he's going to bless the people and stand at a heights where he's able to see the land of Israel. Right after that, his next step that he wants to know is who will succeed him as the next leader. And what's interesting is when he says, who will succeed me as the next leader? His question is, we need, I need a successor. Why? I don't want to leave my flock without a shepherd. Because that's the perspective of a true leader. The perspective of a true leader is to do what is always best for his people, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that what the people want is going to be what's best for them, right? But that he always wants what, what is best for his people. 
The, this leader was raised up with the qualities of being a terrific leader. Yeruvim begins life as a great Torah scholar, as a very humble person, as someone who works on behalf of the people. But as we mentioned in the past, the power corrupted him. Right? The idea of saying, by the way, that a, a leader is someone who should uh, be a shepherd. Um, my grandfather, Zechrona Levracha, his memory should be a blessing. My mother's father, who would be, now he would already be a hundred and uh, 25, if he, 27, if he were still alive. Um, so he was born in, in Russia in 1914. And um, he was an only child. His father was the town rabbi. And when he was eight years old, he was playing with some sheep. And some of the, the people in, in town said to him, when you grow up, what are you going to be? Are you going to be a rabbi like your father? You're going to be a shepherd, right? They, they were, you know, shepherding, as we would say in Yiddish, right? They were... Um, how do you translate shepherding? Uh, teasing him, I guess. I guess teasing him would be the best way to translate it. So he said to them, it's not up to me, it's up to you. So they said, what do you mean it's up to us? That is very simple. If you guys want to act like men, I'll be your rabbi. If you want to act like sheep, I'll be a shepherd. It's up to you, right? So, but, but the idea is that that's what a true leader, a true leader has to recognize. I, I was told this actually at, at his funeral um, in Israel. I, I met his first cousin who was older than him. Uh, she's no longer alive either. Her name is um, Sarah Rapberg. And she told me the story at the funeral. She, she said, oh, I loved your grandfather. He was such a nice man. But she told me the story. So I, I, I will never forget that story. Great line. Um, anyways, so what happens is like this. The Hashem says, I took it away from them because they were doing the wrong thing. But you have acted worse than all those who preceded you. You have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to vex me. And me, you have cast behind your back. What does it mean behind your back? What does this mean? It's because you're making believe that you don't, but you, you are able to worship these other gods. You're able to worship these calves as my representation in this world. But honestly, it's really just behind your back. It's kind of like you're sneaking away to your lover. You're sending your wife in disguise to speak to my prophet. What kind of game do you think you're playing over here? Cognitive dissonance does not work in front of God, right? We have to, at some point in our lives, there's a blinding flash of clarity. What we're doing is wrong, right? Hopefully this happens before we get into heaven, right? But when we get into heaven, then it certainly will become blindingly clear that everything that we've been doing that is correct or is incorrect will now become bright as day, black and white, right? Which won't happen in this world. We are supposed to have a level of murkiness, a level, a lack of clarity, which does lead to this cognitive dissonance. The Torah is supposed to help us break through that cognitive dissonance, right? To help us actually recognize what's truly good, what's truly not good. Therefore, I will bring disaster upon the house of Yeruvim and will cut off from Yeruvim every male, bond and free in Israel. I will sweep away the house of Yeruvim utterly as dung is swept away. This is a, obviously a terribly frightening prophecy and a prophecy that you would imagine the wife of Yeruvim is sitting there and probably you know, bursts into tears on the spot. Anyone belonging to Yeruvim who dies in the town shall be devoured by dogs, and anyone who dies in the open country shall be eaten by the birds of the air, for the Lord has spoken. As for you, go back home. As soon as you set foot in the town, the child will die. This is a terribly sad story. We'll read in the sources what, what, what exactly Avia had done to be good, to be bad. We'll read in the sources. And all Israel shall lament over him and bury him. He alone of Yerubim's family shall be brought to burial. 
or in him alone of the house of Yeravam, has some devotion been found to the Lord, the God of Israel. So what we have over here is an interesting story. You have over here is this person. He's not a child, by the way. The, the implication is that he's a child, right? Her child is sick. We will see he's not a child, right? He, he's uh, at least a, 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 um, an adolescent, if not an adult. And he does have an independent will. He's been doing the right thing. And as far as we are concerned, he is the only person who's doing the right thing in that entire family. Yet he's the one who gets punished, right? This is just brings home the point once again. I don't say only the good die young, right? That's a you know, famous song, not only the good die young, but that oftentimes the people who are the best of the people, they end up taking the brunt of the blame in this world. And sometimes that acts as a shield for others. Alternatively, he's actually the only one of that entire family who's brought to burial. He does die before the rest of them. He's actually brought to a burial. Whereas the rest of them are going to die. And as we read, if they die in the town, they'll be devoured by dogs. If they die in the open country, they'll be eaten by vultures, right? That's far more awful than what is going to happen to Avia who dies at a young age. The Midrash explains that Avia would have fallen into the lifestyle of his father and of his siblings. He would have ended up becoming affected by peer pressure and he would have indeed started worshiping idols. And therefore, Hashem preferred to take him from this world before his time so that he does not end up worshiping idols. And this is something which we found elsewhere in the Torah that we have at the beginning in Bereshit, we have the idea of Hanoch, that Hanoch walks with God and he dies at the age of 365, I believe, far younger than anybody else at that time period when they're dying in 800 years old, 900 years old. And the Midrash teaches that he was walking with God, but if he would have been alive for longer, he would have fallen into sin. And therefore God took him off this world before he falls into sin. Moreover, the Lord will raise up a king over Israel who will destroy the house of the Arabim, this day and even now. This does not mean to say that this day the king will be rose or will be um, caused to rise over the people of Israel. That's not what it's trying to say. What it's trying to say is that as this day is right now, this day, the same way we say today, something that we can point to, something tangible, something concrete right now, that is how certain it will be that Hashem will cause that the house of Yerubim will be completely destroyed. The Lord will strike Israel until it sways like a reed in water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have provoked the Lord by the sacred posts that they have made for themselves. He will forsake Israel because of the sins that Yeravim committed and led Israel to commit. So Yeravim, if you remember, Yeravim is one of the three people who the Talmud teaches us has no portion in the world to come. Every Jew has a portion in the world to come. Every non-Jew who does the right thing will have a portion in the world to come, right? But Yeravim, along with a couple of other people who are bad actors, will never have any portion in the world to come. Why? Yeravim falls into the category of what we call a mesistumediach, which means he doesn't only sin himself, he drags others along with him. He brings them down to his level, right? Which is something that's considered the worst possible thing that you can do. Okay, before we go any further, I want to just stop for questions or comments, and then I want to look at the, some of these other uh, sources. Anybody have any questions or comments? Okay, nothing. Ruben, you got nothing to say? Nothing. Okay, sounds good. So source number two. Source number two is the Talmudic passage. The Talmudic passage is in Moed Katan. 
And it's really in the middle of a Gemara, but I, I was starting right in the middle because that Gemara is, uh, doesn't really speak to what we're discussing right here. The Gemara is going to discuss the story of Aviyah, son of King Yeravim. Rabbi Yossi says, with regard to Aviyah, son of King Yeravim, the verse states, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. Are these matters not inferred a fortiori? If with regard to Aviyah, son of Yeravim, who did only one good thing, as it is written, because in him there is found some good thing towards the Lord God of Israel. He did only one good thing, and this was his reward. Then with regard to the sons of Rabbi Yishmael, all the more so should they be rewarded by having the entire Jewish people mourn for them and bury them. The context of this conversation is like this. The context of this conversation is that we're talking about um, the sons of Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Ishmael loses his children at a young age, and the rabbis come to console him. And they're each trying to say something to console him and, and using different stories from the prophets and from the writings to console him over his terrible losses. This is one of the consolations that's offered. Now, the Gemara asks, what was this one good thing that Abiyah did? Rabbi Zera and Rabbi Chinana Bar Papa disagreed about this issue. One said he abandoned his guard post. His father, Yeravim, had assigned him to serve as one of the guards whose mission it was to prevent people from going up to Jerusalem on the pilgrimage festivals. And he himself went up to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage festival. And one said he removed the guards that his father, Yeravim, had placed along the roads so that the people of Israel would not go up to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage festivals. Okay, two possibilities. Uh, sorry. Okay, so what's the one good thing that he did? We have two different opinions, right? And it, it, very similar opinions, right? And you have to even try to figure out what the difference is between these two opinions. But both of these answers lie in the fact that his father, Yeravim, had tried to set up these guards so that no one will go back up to Jerusalem on the pilgrimage festivals, on Sukkot, Shavuot, and Pesach, on Passover. Uh, they did not want them going as if they went then they'll still be worshiping the southern kingdom. And they'll recognize that the, that the Davidic king is on a higher level than their king. So for his political considerations, he didn't want people going back down anymore. Now, Aviyah, against his father's will, either he abandoned his guard post and went up himself, and once said he just removed the guard so that the people of Israel would be able to go to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage festival. So this one good thing that Aviyah does ends up leading to him having a special divine providence where he ends up dying before he ends up sinning, right? Not like the other members of his family. And he ends up getting buried in a nice burial where everyone mourns for him, right? I think what the Gemara is trying to really establish is just what one good thing can do, that one good action taken at one point in someone's life can really have an impact forever, okay? Now, the next source is like this. The next source is a fascinating idea that Talmud comes up with like this. The prophet Achiah the Shiloni cursed Israel in the following terms. For the Lord will smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. Okay? Now that's presumably a pretty strong a curse, right? What the Talmud is going to do is going to flip it around, right? And it's going to flip it around based on something in last week's Torah portion. Have you just said that Rav said, this too is for a blessing? As Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani said that Rabbi Yochanan said, what is the meaning of that which is written? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, right? What does this mean, right? This means the curse with which Achia the Shilonite cursed the Jewish people is more effective than the blessing with which Bilam the wicked blessed them. In last week's Torah portion, Bilam blesses us against his will, yes, but he blesses us. And one of his blessings refers to the fact that we are like a cedar tree, the Jewish people, 
right? Now, why is that worse than being cursed that we should be like a reed in the water? Rabbi Yochanan elaborates, curse the Jewish people by comparing them to a reed. For the Lord will smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. Although this seems to be a curse, this verse is actually a blessing. Just as this reed stands in a place of water, and its shoots replenish themselves when cut, and its roots are numerous for a plant of its size, and even if all the winds in the world come and blow against it, they cannot move from such place. Rather, it sways with them until the winds subside, and the reed still stands in its place. The same applies to the Jewish people. After all the difficulties that they endure, they will ultimately survive and return home, right? A beautiful idea, right? That he's not cursing us. That will be like a, a cedar that, that will be like a cedar that falls down. That's not the curse. The curse that will be like a reed in the water. That's buffeted here. It's buffeted there. But at the end of the day, it still stands. And Bilaam, the wicked, blessed the Jews by comparing them to a cedar, as it is stated, as cedars beside the water. Just as the cedar does not stand in a place of water and its shoots do not replenish themselves and its roots are not numerous, Bilaam wished that the same should apply to the Jewish people. Furthermore, while it is true that even if all the winds in the world blow against it, they will not move from its place, once the southern wind blows against it, it uproots the cedar and turns it on its base. And not only that, but the reed merited that a quill, what we call kulmas, right, is taken from it to write with it a Torah scroll, the prophets, and the right. Evidently, the curse comparing Israel to a reed is better than the blessing likening them to a cedar. To the point that the Gemara is saying is that when someone who loves you has to punish you, they do so in a way that ends up being more beneficial for you than the curse, than the blessing of a wicked person. And this is what the Torah tells us. It tells us both with Bilam that Hashem says we don't need you to say anything to them. And also with Lavan. Hashem says, do not go near Yaakov either to bless him or to curse him. Stay far away from Yaakov. He doesn't need it because the Jewish people are blessed. So the blessing we don't need. Sometimes we have to get punished. If the punishment can be done in a way that's the most gentle and most and, and give us the punishment, but while having the least detrimental effect on us, that's the easiest thing for us. And who will do that? Only someone who loves us. Okay. That's what the Talmud is teaching us, is even this curse of Ahi Ashiloni coming from someone who loves them is as gentle as it can be. Yeravim's wife got up and left. She went to Tirza. As soon as she stepped over the threshold of her house, the child died. They buried him, and all Israel lamented over him in accordance with the word that the Lord had spoken through his servant, the prophet Ahia. Now, what does it mean in accordance with the word? What are we trying to say by that? If you remember, let's go back up just a little bit, right? What did we say about, about, um, about him? We said, and all Israel shall lament over him and bury him. He alone of your other family shall be brought to burial, right? And therefore, they indeed all lamented. The reason why they lament is not because there was a prediction that they would lament. That's not why they lament. The reason why they lament is because they have been told now that the house that they followed, right? The civil war that they have orchestrated, right, on behalf of Yerubim, they know it's over now. And this is the final place where they're going to be able to mourn for that loss, when they'll be able to actually bury the king. We'll see that the other kings don't even have the, the luxury of having this burial system. And therefore, they're mourning the, the complete failure of their rebellion. The other events of Yerubam's reign, how he fought and how he ruled, are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. In general, kings in those days would always have a, 
a book, a history book, the Arab Chronicles of their, of their rulership, right? And a lot of what we know actually, contemporaneous reports going back as far as, um, yeah, as far back as Egypt even, right? A lot of stuff that we know are based on the king's report of what happened, what didn't happen, you know, the good things that were happening, the bad things that were happening. Obviously, they gloss over the bad things and they glorify the good things. So, but the, his, his fights are all recorded in, in this book. Yeravam reigned 22 years, then he slept with his fathers and his son, Nadav, succeeded him as king. Okay? That's the end of the story of Yeravam, right, himself. Now, within this one chapter where they're going to put together what was going on meantime, meanwhile, back at the castle, right? What was going on down in the southern kingdom? And we're going to see that it's not any better in the southern kingdom. In fact, in some ways, it's worse. Meanwhile, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, had become king in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. The city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to establish his name there. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. Okay, so Nama means that Nama means the, um, to be pleasing, right? And she comes from the family of Ammon, right? Ammon is B'nai Ami, right? Is the daughter of Lot who slept with her father, right? <laughs> Judah did what was displeasing to the Lord and angered him more than their fathers had done by the sins that they committed. They too built for themselves shrines, pillars, and sacred posts on every high hill and under every leafy tree. There were also male prostitutes in the land. Judah imitated all the abhorrent practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. So now this is even worse than the Northern Kingdom. And to some extent, it's actually far worse. And the reason why is because there's not even any political consideration to this. They're worshiping idols without any material benefit that they're going to receive. They have an altar that they have a Beit HaMikdash. They have a holy temple that they can go worship in. And instead, they're giving this up for idol worship. So Yeruvim, we can kind of understand his thought process. He, he knows otherwise he won't be taken seriously. So therefore, he comes up with this plan. But Rehavim, what's his deal, right? Why is he allowing this kind of behavior to exist? Because he's not doing the right thing. In the fifth year of King Rehavim, King Shishak of Egypt marched against Jerusalem. We already read about King Shishak, right? And previously, and carried off the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He carried off everything. He even carried off all the golden shields that Solomon had made. King Rehavim had bronze shields made instead, and he entrusted them to the officers of the guard who guarded the entrance to the royal palace. Whenever they... Go ahead. Well, I just, it caught my eye you read that was male prostitutes. Well, in my art school, it just said prostitutes. Is that it's the Hebrew? Uh... Yes, yeah, so let's go up at the Hebrew and we'll look at that. The Hebrew says like this. The Hebrew says, Kadesh. Okay, this word right here, Kadesh. Yeah. So Hebrew sometimes speaks in euphemisms, right? And sometimes we'll use the word that's the exact opposite of the meaning. Okay, so... Kadesh or Kadesha, right? In, in the Torah, it says Kadesha, which means a prostitute, a female prostitute. Okay. So we're calling them holy. It's obviously a joke, right? It's it's an irony because they're not they're obviously very far from holy. But it means the idea of being Kodesh, when someone gets married in Hebrew, we call it Kedushin. And the reason why we call it Kedushin is because they are separated, they are consecrated to each other. 
right? They are separated from the rest of the world to some extent. They're living their own personal lives. And in terms of being intimate, they're only intimate with each other. And therefore they are called Kodesh, right? Kodesh means to be sanctified. Kodesh means to be removed, right? Hashem is Kadosh. Hashem is holy because he is removed. So Kodesh means to be removed. This Kadesh, this Kadesha, they are not removed. They are completely open to everyone. They're open for business, literally, to anybody who wishes to take part in their body, right? So the phrase that the Torah uses is Kadesh. Now, typically, when the Torah talks about a prostitute, it says Kadesha, a female prostitute. So Kadesh sounds like we're referring to a male prostitute, which is why the, the assumption is that we're actually referring to a male prostitute here. There is another opinion. We're not referring to a male prostitute. We actually are referring to a female prostitute, and we're just using the word Kadesh. But, but, uh, but conceptually, typically, Kadesh would mean a female, I'm sorry, a male prostitute. King Rechavim had bronze shields made instead, and he entrusted them to the officers of the guard who guarded the entrance to the royal palace. Whenever the king went into the house of the Lord, the guards would carry them and then bring them back to the armory of the guards. The other events of Rechavim's reign and all his actions are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. There was continual war between Rechavim and Yeravim. Rechavim slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Nama the Amnonites, and his son, Abiyam succeeded him as king, right? There's clearly a, some sort of a, um, a connection here between Abiyah, who was the son of Yeravam, and Abiyam, a very, very similar name, who was the son of, um, of Rechavam, right? And uh, I saw some people want to suggest that perhaps Abiyah, Rabbi means Avi is my father, Yah is Hashem, right? So Abiyah would mean my father, God. Right, so you name your kid, my father God, that's a way of saying how, how um, your relationship with God is so essential and primary to you. So both of them are coming to try to exhibit this side of themselves and say, look how holy we are, right? Well, both of them end up terrible, terrible sins that are happening where they're both causing idol worship left and right. And Judah is actually considered to be even worse than what the, what the nation of Israel is doing. They also have abominations, right? And abominations is the other hint that we're talking about homosexual relations because that's the way the Torah describes uh, homosexual relations is that it is an abomination to God, okay? So therefore what we see is that the, what's happening right now with the Jewish people, things are not going well at all, right? And this is, a, as we've noted, there's always a pattern in terms of kings, in terms of what things are doing well, and then sometimes they start doing badly and there's like the troughs and the peaks, right? And right now we are, we are heading for a serious trough, right? And we've already had people able to take back over Jerusalem. There's been a, a success, succession, right? And we see what's going on here. And this is something that's going to continue. They will now be split up into these two tribes and never to come back together again. The two and the 10 will not come back together again until Mashiach comes. Right? And we're seeing the, the uh, results of this even today, this uh, division, and that we no longer have the sense of unity that we had one time. 